But that's really it. Until next time, pleasant dreams. Bye. Fell snow and scream. There was a place. Welcome back, Insomniacs. That's right, your worst fears have been realised, and the previous episode was in fact a backdoor pilot for a new hour-long Twin Peaks podcast. I spotted a gap in the market. There just aren't enough Twin Peaks casts out there. Uh, I'm joking, obviously. Uh, rest assured that whatever passes for ordinary service here at the Spoil Well will resume shortly, um, which does mean shorter episodes, I promise. Uh, I just couldn't resist adding my voice to the hype chorus. Um, to explain myself a little bit, I know I explicitly said last time that I couldn't talk about the end of Twin Peaks, because it technically hasn't ended yet. But then a few things occurred to me. Uh, one, those backward intros are really fun to do. Uh, two, uh, I, I don't want to talk about anything except Twin Peaks right now. And three, uh, I have a, a distinct feeling that with this this new series that starts today, uh, David Lynch is going to do a Bobby Briggs with this new season and turn it upside down. So all of our kind of long-held notions and fevered conjectures about the old material are about to come completely obsolete. So I thought I would get a, a, a few of my thoughts about the old series on record just in time for them to become irrelevant. So this episode is about what I'm calling Twin Peaks ABC, the 1990 to 1991 series. I'm not going to talk about Firewalk with me. In fact, I'm not going to talk about Firewalk with me at all. I'm going to leave it out of this. A uh, couple of things to say up front. This is going to get really nerdy. So if you're not already familiar with David Lynch and Mark Frost's ageless TV show Twin Peaks, you will get nothing out of this. And... Um, just by way of a content warning, this episode will touch upon issues of sexual abuse and violence against women. So, the dazzling final episode of that original series demands a close reading, but luckily for you guys, I haven't the time or the analytical chops to do so. So, as I intimated earlier, there are dozens of de dedicated Twin Peaks podcasts out there, and uh, being a total geek, I've sampled most of them. If you only have time for one, like some kind of normie pleb, uh, I highly recommend Diane entering the town of Twin Peaks. They're based in my former home of Brighton and they're both brainy and fun and they go pretty deep with every episode. They really go into the sort of um, uh, the, the folktale uh, uh, and anthropological aspects of, of Twin Peaks. And uh, they culminated recently in a, an amazing triptych of episodes about the film and Jennifer Lynch's book. Uh, another good one is The Lodgers, which I mentioned last time. They're probably the most film literate of the, the podcasts. And they also just did a brilliant show on Firewalk with me. And, uh, and Bickering Peaks, a Canadian podcast, just did a whole week of podcasts about the film, including a segment called 16 Reasons Why James is Cool That Made My Day. So go to those guys for the real close analysis of the finale. What I thought I'd do today is just share some thoughts about the final moments of that episode. 
that notorious world-shattering image that's burned into all our brains and has haunted our thoughts for years and is ultimately the reason we're coming back. I refer, of course, to Laura Palmer's face in the coffee cup. This image plays over the end credits and uh, it seems to me that it really gets at what is, uh, Lynch is up to in the episode and this series in general. Lynch directs five episodes after the pilot and each one is a disruption and a reframing of the continuity up to that point, expanding and redefining the show's symbolic vocabulary. But at the same time, all those episodes are a return to and a reaffirmation of certain core elements that the other writers tended to stray from. I've long held that the received wisdom regarding Lynch and Frost's collaboration is exactly backwards. So people always talk about Frost as a kind of anchoring influence, reigning in Lynch's excesses, almost keeping him in check. Uh, this is unfair, I think, to both of them. He's undeniably more interested in conventional plotting, but Frost, God love him, is really all over the place. He's throwing in every one of his esoteric interests into the mix, which is where you get this kind of hodgepodge of detective fiction, theosophy... UFO conspiracy lore, Eastern religion, Native American mythology, Arthuriana, and comic book adventure. I mean, read Frost's novel if you want to see how wayward his version of Twin Peaks can be. It's Lynch, for all his abstraction, who tends to get things back on course, to keep things at least thematically consistent. And this isn't to knock Frost or, or any of the other writers and directors of Twin Peaks. I love the inconsistent, meandering second series, but I doubt I would look half as kindly upon it if Lynch hadn't brought things back around with this last episode, which does at times feel like a, a rebuke to those portions of the show. And um, that, that last point can be overstated a tad at times. It is well known that Lynch rewrote large portions of the original script by Frost, Harley Payton and Robert Engels. A lot of people assume that the, the violent ends to various goofy storylines in this episode were Lynch's kind of sour repudiation of where the series had gone. And in fact, all of these come more or less intact from the script. Even the famous final cliffhanger with Cooper seeing Bob in the mirror was a simultaneous flash of Harley Payton, Mark Frost in inspiration. They weren't blowing things up as a fuck you to the wacky hijinks of season two. They were just expert TV writers doing what they do best stuffing the episode full of tantalising cliffhangers. The big changes Lynch made were mainly to do with the final section in the dreamy other place known as the Black Lodge, drastically mishandled in the script. But elsewhere he does make small but crucial changes per sim. Most importantly, he reintroduces key characters and symbols that had been absent from or marginalised by the original script, and in some cases by the series in general in Lynch's absence. These include... Dr. Jacoby, Renette Pulaski, Sylvia Horn, The Log Lady, Heidi, Shelley, Bobby, Betty Briggs, The Giant, The Little Man, The Room Service Waiter, Maddie, The Red Room, Scorched Engine Oil, Fish, Coffee, and most importantly, Sarah, Leland, and Laura Palmer. Twin Peaks is the story of Laura Palmer. As a rule, the episode ended on a still shot of her homecoming portrait with Laura Palmer's theme playing over the credits. With one exception, Lynch was the only director to break this rule. As the uh, eminent Twin Peaks critic Joel Bocco has pointed out, this could be quite jarring in the episodes after her murder is solved, since the episodes themselves barely contained any reference to her. Whereas in Lynch's episodes, the portrait might be missing from the credits, but in the episodes themselves there is always to some degree a more fleshed out portrait. 
This isn't a trivial point. In the previous episode directed by Lynch, when the killer is revealed to be Leland Palmer, we're finally confronted with the horrifying fact that the story of Laura Palmer, and by extension the story of Twin Peaks, is ultimately the story of the systematic rape, abuse, and ultimately murder of a young girl by her father. And this is hard to take, not just because of the rawness of the subject matter, but because of the sense that this has been staring us in the face all along. From the horror of the Palmer house, to the sense of guilt and denial that hangs over the whole first season. Those of us who have been seduced by Laura Palmer as a mere construct are suddenly confronted with the reality that we, like the townspeople, on some level knew all along but didn't want to face. And Twin Peaks doesn't want to punish us for this. Uh, The moment it unburdens itself of its terrible secret, what Robert Engels called the free-floating guilt of the show, becomes this beautiful moment in the roadhouse of free-floating empathy. The problem is what the show did next. Starting almost straight away, Twin Peaks seems to try its damnedest to shrink from the ramifications of what it's just shown us. Most notoriously, a few episodes later, we have Cooper and Jacoby, the preternaturally sensitive hero, and the Laura Palmer-obsessed psychiatrist, laughing and joking at the wake of the man who's just been revealed to have been an incestuous murderer, It gets worse as you realise that nobody is going to show any reaction whatsoever to the awful reenactment of Laura's murder that resulted in the death of Madeline Ferguson. And as I said, until the final episode, the whole Palmer case is almost never mentioned again. And once again, I'm a staunch defender of the second season, and uh, I think Frost gets short shrift generally. But if anything about this run of episodes is truly indefensible, it's the casual ditching of Laura and Maddie just as the full extent of their tragedy is brought to light. Two years ago, when Lynch announced he was leaving the Showtime project, the cast made a campaign video to put pressure on the executives. And the first person we saw in this video was Cheryl Lee, who said, Twin Peaks without David Lynch is like a girl without a secret. And in a way, that's exactly what we get after the reveal. A Twin Peaks without David Lynch, where both the girl and her secret are swept under the rug. And this is where the significance of Laura in the coffee cup comes in. My argument is that with this image and this episode, Lynch is bringing back the symbols of Peak Peaks and reinfusing them once and for all with Laura Palmer and her trauma, as well as inexorably twinning her with Dale Cooper and his eventual fate. Uh, coffee and food in general play a major role, as I'm sure you all know, in Twin Peaks iconography from the start, symbolising the warmth and charm of the town at its best and serving as the object and avatar of Cooper's boundless enthusiasm for Twin Peaks and life in general. But also, right from the start, there's a suggestion that food in Twin Peaks is somehow tainted. A fish in the percolator, a cigarette in the meatloaf, blood on the donuts, and a cherry pie that'll kill you. And let's not even go into what they're serving at the local hospital. And this is just one indication that there's something rotten at the heart of Twin Peaks. Note that after Cooper, the characters with the most love for food are the slimy Horn brothers, the elder of whom is a kind of proto-Leland Palmer himself. And in fact, male characters with an unhealthy tendency towards exploitative sexual relationships with very young women and a susceptibility to the evil that men do ripple disturbingly throughout all of Twin Peaks. By the time Cooper gets to the Black Lodge, coffee can no longer be relied upon for cosy, homely comfort. Once again, Lynch is showing us things we've seen before and making them unheimlich, a very clear sign that something is deeply wrong. 
And once again, that thing is, was and will be Cooper's failure and Laura's trauma. Two catastrophes that reverberate all through the 30 episodes of Twin Peaks. And obviously to think of it this way does require a kind of willingness to, to go along with a retcon. Uh, although depending on who you ask, you'll get different responses as to exactly when Laura's secret and Coop's downfall were decided on. But just as with Mulholland Drive, an idea two years after the fact provides us with a way of seeing that colours what we've seen before. And this is what I was trying to get out in, in, the, in the Inland Empire episode uh, when I was talking about events in, in Lynch films being diffuse. There's a, a painful sense that the moment of Laura's death and that of Cooper's finally succumbing to evil are always happening. The recurrent head traumas in Twin Peaks, from Renette to Madeline to Leland to just about everybody in the last episode, can now be seen as echoes backwards from Cooper's final terrible smash into the mirror. Although, of course, that can be seen as an echo of the ones that came before. This dreadful simultaneity tells us something about the way Lynch conceptualises time in his film, but also about something about the living hell of abuse. Similarly, after this final episode, it's hard not to see the show's soapy obsession with doubles and duality, and especially with good and bad versions of people. So Laura's many brunette stand-ins, good Ben versus bad Ben, the black and white lodge, it's hard not to see them as precursors or as I prefer echoes of Cooper's nightmarish split. But at the same time, I think it has to be seen as something being dreamed by Laura, a toxic conception of good girl, bad girl that is well documented among abuse survivors and their abusers. After the shock of what happens to Coop, the extra sting of this final image is the insistence that his fate is cleaved to what happened to Laura. Okay. I'm aware that some of you are probably finding it a bit silly that I'm hanging all this on an image placed underneath the credits. It's the ultimate kind of fanish over analysis. And uh, obviously I was having a bit of uh, fun at the start there because, you know, I talk about the final moments of the series. You think I'm talking about Bob in the mirror. Actually, I'm talking about Laura Palmer in the coffee cup. Ha ha ha. Uh, but I I'm just going to take a quick detour and talk about another thing I love about this being the last thing you see, which is that it's slightly ludicrous. The last thing we see at the end of everything is a beaming inverted Laura Palmer gradually superimposed on a coffee cup in the red room. And that is a bit silly. If if you're the sort of person for whom the main problem with the terrible alien film uh, that just came out is, is the CGI blood, you might have expressed a wish that, oh, at least we won't get any funny early 90s CGI of owls and drawer knobs and, and faces in coffee, etc. But here, here's the thing. David Lynch made the Eraserhead baby out of God knows what. He can do practical effects, but he often chooses to use these, these very simple VFX that could kind of code as cheesy to a lot of people, like the, the superimposition of the mystery man on Patricia Arquette in Lost Highway, or the old couple in Mulholland Drive, and yet in context they're incredibly upsetting and unsettling. This ability to find the uncanny and the ridiculous is a defining feature of Twin Peaks, and it brings me to a question I've been thinking on for a while about the level of zaniness in the upcoming season. Twin Peaks got really zany. For a while in series two, it was almost the dominant tone, making the moments of melodrama or mythology seem kind of jarring and out of place among the antics. This thing got so zany that Billy Zane ended up in it. To go back to that original finale script, the scenes in the Black Lodge really are just terrible. Wyndham Earl, probably the most fatally zany character, will not shut the fuck up, 
and finally moves from 60s Batman villain to third-tier Looney Tunes character. It's no wonder that Lynch threw it out. But Lynch himself is hardly immune to the zaniness. This man co-created On the Air, remember? Uh, the, the difference is in his utterly confident mix of tones. If you think of the slapstick with Deputy Andy and the board, or Nadine and the milkshake, prime series two silliness. But in both cases, the scenes go on for an uncomfortably long time, and you see actual blood. I have to think that some of that element will be there in the new series, but I just don't know. It's, it's a question that's been going round and round in my head. Just how zany will this, the new show be? How zany? 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 I'm not quite sure what happened there, sorry. Uh, I'd better get back on topic. Uh, there's one more thing about this strange, sad, slightly absurd image of Laura in the coffee cup that may point towards a way back into the light. And this is that Laura is smiling. And although still, she is animate. You can see her blinking. You can see her face moving slightly as she holds her expression. The Laura Palmer we normally see in the end credits is cruelly frozen in time, dead, trapped in aspic, a 2D object for us to project meaning and desire onto. This Laura is alive, however ambiguously so. This may be the beginning of what David Foster Wallace characterised as her transformation from dramatic object to dramatic subject, a process Lynch would take to radical levels a year later, with Frost tellingly declining to come along but we're not going to talk about Firewalk with me. Uh, thanks so much to anyone who bothered to listen to to all of that. Um, apologies to anyone whose ideas I might have plagiarised. I've absorbed so much kind of Twin Peaks content at this stage that I'm not always sure what originates from my own mind. In any case, it's time for us all to, to engage in a big way with a new primary text, as Twin Peaks The Return starts in a matter of hours and it runs for the next few months. It's a, it's a May-September series, and how thematically appropriate is that? I cannot wait. Again, I promise we're back to shorter episodes next time. As ever, please rate and review on iTunes or SoundCloud, and email any feedback to spoilwell at gmail.com, spoilwell at gmail.com. Uh, you may follow me on Twitter, at titopollins, at T-Y-T-O-P-O-L-L, ENS. It's a species of owl. Look it up. Um, I mainly tweet Wikipedia captions and I retweet pictures of Danielle Steele's Chihuahua Poppy. Um, but sometimes I do find myself sucked into Twin Peaks combos. Um, but that's really it. Until next time, pleasant dreams. Bye. <laughs>